I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, where we talk to deal makers about the deals they do, the beverages they enjoy, and the hobbies in which they partake. And today, our guest is Chris Varellis, who was the head of technology, media, and telecom M&A at Solomon and Solomon Smith Barney. Uh, and in 2008, uh, helped launch uh, Riverwood Capital and just uh, published a book, How Money Became Dangerous. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, so the book traces your path from, from growing up in Southern California uh, to, you know, through your career at, at Solomon and City and then into to Riverwood. But, but one of the, the interesting, it sounds like really formative experiences for you was your work uh, as literally was a hostess was the title at, at Disneyland. So, so if you could talk about how you got the job, what you learned at, at, you know, just, just working a, a grunt level job at Disneyland in the eighties. Yeah, no, I needed a job. I worked at Anaheim stadium selling peanuts and the baseball players went on strike and pe- I needed a job and people would always say, so this was 1981, correct? 1981. Correct. You know, your baseball history. And people said, oh, you look like someone that could work at Disneyland, which I wasn't ever sure was a compliment or an insult, but it didn't matter. So I go down, I apply, and I say, I'll take any job. You know, I can't be picky. And then I get this notice in the mail saying, you've been hired, and you'll be a hostess in New Orleans Square. I thought hostess was a bit funny, but I thought, oh, it's job to job. And I showed up at Disney, and my first day, and my boss looks at me and squints and goes, no, no, you're not Chris Morellis. I go, well, yes, I am. And I showed him my ID and he goes, oh, this is, this is really strange. And, you know, and I realized then quickly I was the only male hostess in the whole place. So 80 women hired pretty much for their looks and charm and me. I know that, that begs the question of how I got the job. I understand that. But um, there I was. And for five years, I proceeded to be uh, ho- the only male hostess in the history of Disney. And so what, so what did you, you learn? Because Disney is, has a, a very obsessive approach to uh, visitor experience, we now call it. Yeah, obsessive to say the least. You know, Disney gets a lot of credit for his creativity, but what he is going to be remembered for, his real impact, I believe, is on customer service. Because we take customer service for granted now. It's like a given in terms of building client customer loyalty didn't really exist and disney basically pioneered the the guest experience so we were casted for a part and our goal was to make that guest feel as special as possible so we went through disney university we were taught to always smile we were always taught i'll never forget you know you may be asked a hundred times a day where the bathroom is but that's the only time and the most important time that person is asking so that mentality of constantly serving the guests is just ingrained in you. And how long did it take for that to become second nature to you? Well, you know, when you're young, impressionable, 17, very quickly and easily. And I think they hired for the part also. So, you know, I, you know, if you tend to be a smiling optimist, you know, they tend to say, okay, if, if you naturally smile, it's going to be easy for you to smile. And actually in many situations later in life, I've had people say, wow, like, you know, for example, on Wall Street, very difficult negotiations. And, you know, people would say, wow, he really put it to me, but he was smiling the whole time. So, you know, it, it you know, it's a little off-putting. But so, yeah, no, smiling is, is just part of nature once you get there. And, and, and so it sounds like this really influenced how you 
conducted yourself and, and maybe even how you thought about your, your job uh, once you, you got to Wall Street? Yeah, when you're, when you're raised on be nice and friendly and care and connect and understand really customer services, understanding the needs of the other person or party and then satisfying them. So if you have that customer orientation, customer service orientation, when it's hard to imagine a world that doesn't have that orientation. That's, it's hard to, one thing that's been fun about the book is it takes people back to a time that they couldn't imagine after because we've gotten so used to the modern world. And so, yeah, everything I've done in my life, um, even, even when I got to Wall Street and the world of trading, banking, whatever, whatever role I was, it's always, okay, what's the relationship? What's our connection? My best way to connect is let me understand who you are and what you need. And then I will do my best to make that happen, hopefully in the construct of a win-win situation. And so you, you went to Occidental uh, College in Southern California, and then you worked for a couple of years out of college as, as a lending officer in, in uh, Los Angeles for, and I guess Southern California, for Bank of America. And one of the most memorable characters, well, a couple of the most memorable characters in the book come from, from that chapter. You know, one of them is a, a diamond dealer, uh, and, and the other is some, I think, a gold dealer who it turns out is uh, laundering money for Pablo Escobar. Yes, I don't know that. So imagine, <laughs> imagine a liberal arts major, Disney employee, Orange County shows up on, you know, basically Skid Row, downtown LA, where all the illicit activity of Southern California takes place within that block. And now I'm loaning money to diamond dealers and gold wholesalers. And these are really, these are colorful people right? You know, the F word doesn't get used often at Disney, but like, that's like, you know, every other word here, and it's very intense and fast moving. And then here I am, the Disney liberal arts kid now loaning money to these really intense negotiators. I mean, these, these people are, are, you know, living, you know, diamond to diamond, you know, gold bullion to gold bullion. And I'm now in the position of loaning them money for their lines of credit. So, so I have to, to ask you, this is a little off script because Robert Forster, who was, who was you know, one of the, the primary actors in, in Jackie Brown, uh, died just a couple of weeks ago. When you saw Jackie Brown, did it kind of bring that world back to you a little bit or, or the, the L.A. world of Jackie Brown was just still like really different from? No, it did. It did. Actually, I find Pulp Fiction to really drive it home. I, I would describe Barry Kagasoff as like he was this very good looking, charismatic, but he felt like he could kill you in a second. Right. And, and so here I was loaning money to him and I, I was, you know, I was told about the five C's of credit, but character was the one that mattered the most. And he was, had an amazing reputation, but I was, was juxtaposed to this person who was saying swear words all the time and, you know, and, and always just so aggressive and always felt like he was this close to beating the crap out of me. So it's sort of like, okay, that, that character I always associated with Disney nice and all of a sudden character is this guy who like scares everyone, not just me, everyone, all the loan officers, everyone at Bank of America was afraid of him. Everyone. And so, so then you, you spend a, a summer on the, the trading floor at Solomon, the same summer as the 1989 when Michael Lewis's uh, Liar's Poker comes out, but you end up in investment banking there. So, so what was the trading floor like and, and why did you kind of gravitate to investment banking instead? 
Well, I went to the training floor because one of the gifts of my parents was run to experience even though you may fail. And even though all my friends were like, I do not see you on the Solomon Brothers trading floor. They were like, I do not see you there. You are the last person, which only encouraged me to go more because I was like, okay, this will be a really challenging experience. So I went there. It was an amazing experience. Well, I have to say the first day when I showed up, I was like, well, this might not have been a good idea. But, but I went through it. I survived it barely. And then I, you know, I got exposed then to investment banking. I thought that probably fits my personality. And Solomon was nice enough to give me the opportunity to move from sales and trading to investment banking. Although I, I tell the story quickly, I remember going to the head of fixed income and saying, I'm going to move from sales and trading to investment banking, which at the time sales and trading was right. the top of it. He says, I'm glad you're moving. And I said, why? And he goes, anyone who would make that trade, I do not want trading for us. <laughs> right? and, so, and so I moved to, to investment banking and started my career on that trajectory. And so you would have started in 1990, which was kind of a recession. Yes. You know, when there was not, you know, the go-go 80s had ended. RJR had turned out maybe not to be such a, right. such a great idea. Uh, for for KKR to take private, so, so so what was the experience you got in those early years where really there's there's not a lot of M and A. So no one goes into M and A. Come out of the training program, smallest training class in history, fourteen people because it was as you said it was a downturn. No one wanted to go to M and A. Consistent with my my sort of life strategy, I go to M and A because no one wanted to go there. I was the only associate in the whole M and A group, and so there's always enough activity to keep one associate busy. I learned a ton. They couldn't get rid of me. Um, there were plenty of analysts that I could, I could leverage. And so I, and I realized it fit my personality negotiation, particularly long dated, convoluted, difficult relationship oriented negotiations. If you wanted to hire somebody for, you know, for 48 hours to beat the other guy over the head, that really wasn't my thing. But I realized I really enjoyed the, convoluted, many-party complicated, which served me very well later in life. And, and who at, at Solomon in those early years did, did you really enjoy working with and for, and who do you feel like you really learned from? Well, enjoy is an interesting term, right? It's <laughs> like you sort of are given who you're given. And I would say enjoy now, although it, it felt painful. I mean, you know, it, it, was, it was a pretty real, it was a rough culture. But I realized, like, I'm in these deals, like, you know, they say you want to be at the, you know, the biggest poker table in the world. You know, like it, these are the biggest transactions going on in the world. And I'm working with these amazing, uh, very smart, very savvy, talented investment bankers, you know, much more typical than myself. And, you know, they looked at me like, okay, very unorthodox. I didn't fit the, you know, the mold. But I think they appreciated that I really loved the strategy, the negotiation, the relationship side of it as well. And so I was just happy to, you know, to, to go along and do whatever I was told. And, and I was just fortunate to work with some amazing bankers. And how did you end up migrating to or, or focusing on a TMT? Because, I, you know, you, you think of the early 90s, Investment banking in the early, you know, in the 80s and 90s in tech meant primarily IPOs because you in Silicon Valley you didn't you didn't really have a 
mean, you did by the late nineties, but a ton of acquisition activity. Yeah, no, we were, the, Solomon didn't have the legacy of Goldman and Morgan Stanley, but luckily the AT&T breakup created all these entities that didn't have these legacy historical relations. So we didn't have to deal with the, oh, we've been banking with Goldman for a hundred years, right? So it was like, it was free. And so Solomon under Eduardo Mestre and others, Frank Geary and, and, and the whole group really started to dominate that sector, telecom, which gave us some, some presence. And then because that sector was so, uh, you know, wanted, I sort of said, well, I'll go to the other T and TMT, right? I'll go to technology. And it turned out, you know, I wouldn't say I had the foresight to see where that was going to go, but it turned out to be, once again, uh, you know, a, a, a lucky, a wise career choice. And the great thing is once you do a few deals and once you do one and a half deals, I joke, and Wall Street, you're an expert, right? So it's like, if you happen to do the first one and a half, then, you know, you you have a leg up that you can then leverage into you know much more and and from telecom i mean in the in the 90s especially the latter part of the 90s telecom equipment was huge huge i mean so was that part of your transition into that but that did help because the telecom equipment world sort of fell under both and so i remember working on lucent when it went from literally the most owned stock on wall street you know everyone owned it it was the most widely held stock and it just crashed. And I was the banker during that transitional period. And probably the most painful deals I've ever worked on for a whole host of reasons. Because when companies transitioning from boom to bust are, you know, those are ugly and messy transitions. Um, but a great, a great career experience. Uh, and, and so how... I, I guess when did you move out to? Because at some point you, you you moved out to Silicon Valley and really focused on some of those companies. When did that happen? So after the dot com boom happened, bust happened. Another I guess theme like okay, once the dot com bubble burst, I said okay, now I can go to Silicon Valley because before the dot com bubble burst, you were either at Goldman, Morgan, or wherever Frank Quattrone was, right? And it was all about the name, right? And, and, you know, it didn't matter what services you could provide. It was just like, are you one of those three? But once the dot-com bubble moved first, I said, now I can go to California. And so while, while all the U-Hauls were going east, I went west and set up because you can form relations. You can only form real strong relationships during times of difficulty. You don't, you don't build market share when times are good. You build market share when times are bad, and then you reap it when times are good. And so... Then it's like, oh, you're Citigroup. We were Citigroup at the time. We are City. Oh, yeah, you know what? We do need all a line of credit. We do need cash management. We do need XYZ. And City was the only one. And, and you know, didn't have the prestige, but every CEO, no matter who you were, was going to meet with City. And so even though I, I joke, I joined Solomon Brothers and I left City, I never changed firms. The firm I joined and the firm I left could not have been more different. But it was, well, you didn't have the the fun and wild west thing of Solomon city had that. Okay. I will meet with you. So, so there were advantages to that for you professionally, but, but you also discuss in the book, your, your real ambivalence about working for yeah, a massive financial institution. Yeah. You know, the, there's the whole industry. One of the themes of the book went, has gone to scale scope efficiency which meant large, effectively. But as you go large, and you know, Sandy was at the forefront of this, once it became about platform, 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 
people and culture started to take a second, take a back seat. And so I found that all these organizations became a little insipid, prosaic, sort of similar. Used to be when you said Goldman, an image came to mind. When you said Morgan Stanley, an image came to mind. Now they're sort of, they're all becoming a bit homogenous. I mean, the fact that like in a recent quarterly call, Goldman quarterly call, they used the word platform 18 times. That word was never said ever at Goldman Sachs before that time, ever, right? It was always the people, the people, culture, the people, right? And now, so it became a platform. And so the the business and the industry, it lost its personality, I think. It lost the notion of culture as a differentiator. And, And I think if you look at any business, most great businesses have had unique cultures and so I think that was lost. And, you know, to a lot of the benefit. I mean, a lot of the behavior was disruptive in a negative kind of way. And, you know, it always leads to me to the interesting question of can you have the benefits of disruption without disruptive behavior? It's, it's true in technology, too. We're, we're grappling with that now in Silicon Valley ourselves. You, you mentioned Frank Quattrone uh, a little earlier, and he, he obviously has uh, – has had enormous success at, at his the investment bank that he and now George Boutros run, uh, Catalyst. I mean, is that kind of a, an example of an, an institution that's been able to be stay really small, really focused, have a very distinct culture, and succeed for that reason in a in a world where it's competing with, you know, the the cities and and Goldman's yeah. and Morgan Stanley's. Yeah, absolutely. Another example of tacking, if the whole world's going in this way, if the whole world's going towards scale and scope, and you can provide a differentiated relationship-based business, you're going to win with those people who appreciate a differentiated skill set. And and so the real question is, can these large banks, are they the type that's going to attract the talent and retain the talent that's going to provide that differentiated advice? And so therefore, yeah, they carved out, you know, Kenny Molas himself, larger, but still, you know, we're going to be that perfect, you know, we'll give you size, but it'll still not be so big that we lose the, you know, that's the thesis anyway, the relationship benefit of having people take priority over platform. You, you, you discuss, uh, you know, a number of, of fascinating figures in, in the, the deal world in your book. Who would you single out as the most interesting clients you worked for or deals you worked on in your career? That's a real tough one, but I have to say people react very, they've loved the Dick Heckman U.S. filter story, right? The fact that, you know, he's a, he's a visionary. I mean, water now is like a thing, like, you know, my daughter's class, like the theme is water, right? You know, he was out there saying water is a thing. He couldn't believe that in the, as he would say, the most important industry in the world, there's no way to buy it. Because I remember, you know, he had, he was a broker and he's called the desk and he said, you know, how do I play water? And they call back, there's no way to play water. He goes, how can we can play oil? We can play this. Like there's no way. Because so he set out, I'm going to create the world's biggest and largest water company. And you know, there's, there's some people would say he's a messiah. Some people would say he was a narcissist. Some people would say, you know, you have to be both, like whatever. But he was a fascinating, unbelievable salesperson. And he started pitching water to the street and built a company from, he bought something, a company called American Toxic Control. And as he said, we weren't, you know, we weren't stopping it. We were making it, right? And he built that from 30 million to, 
you know, six billion, he ended up selling it for $6 billion to the Vendee of the French many years later through massive acquisitions. But just a, he's a force of nature, right? And one thing that's great about a career on Wall Street is you get to meet these forces of nature. I mean, I picked him, but I could easily pick 20 other people. They're just special individuals that are, are imposing their, really they're imposing their vision on the world. What's interesting about him, especially, you know, given the California through line in your book, is that it, it's it, people in California had had this realization for, for decades. I mean, you, you think even in the popular imagination about a movie like Chinatown, which comes out in 1974, or the book Cadillac Desert, which comes yeah. out in 1982. Why did it take so long for someone to to be able to, to do this on the scale he did. Yeah, I mean, first of all, if you've been to California live there, you realize at some point you're living in a desert, right? And if you live in a desert, water is important. And people don't actually remember, appreciate that Chinatown is a movie about water. They don't actually remember that. And, and, and I think he figured out that I have to do this play on a commercial basis as well as like everyone thinks consumer water he he actually was starting to get into it when commercial was becoming important like if you know how semiconductors are are produced you need the purest cleanest water on the planet so he took advantage of the rise of the commercial side to build this entire conglomerate around water and so he, he, you know, there's a bit of timing on this and there's a bit of being lucky in that sense. And, you know, if he had been five years earlier, he would have failed like everyone else. And if he'd been five years later, maybe no one else would have done it, but he really hit that inflection point um, perfectly. And so, so you move, you, you kind of change career gears in, in 2008 and, and you, you start uh, Riverwood, which is a, a tech focused uh, private equity firm. What, why did you decide to, to you know, walk away from the career you had built? And how have you enjoyed the experience of being an investor as opposed to a, to a banker? Yeah, after, you know, you do something for 20 years and you're at the age of 45, you realize if I do this till I'm 50, it means I'm doing it for the rest of my life. And so I got to make a change at this point. And, and I think a lot of people have been grappling with that post-financial crisis. I did it right before, did not see the financial crisis coming. I probably wouldn't have done it if I knew it was going to happen. But I thought I got to make a change. And I got to turn the dial a little bit, but not so much that it goes away from my skill set. So private equity and tech growth. And I wanted to do something that I could feel good about, like doing leveraged transactions didn't really feel additive to the human experience. I don't think I'm I'm smart enough to do a, be a venture person because they basically you know see the future and make bets. So I thought, okay, we'll help companies grow and scale, and it'll be about execution. So I thought I'll turn the dial, start a private equity firm. Unfortunately, we started it right before the before the financial crisis, and I actually thought we were going to fail because I remember walking around. We had ten meetings set up in Manhattan and the. Dow fell 770 points that day. And it was like every meeting got worse and worse as a day. And by the last meeting, it was basically an intern that was probably working there three days because the thought of, you know, giving money to a first time fund was, was on the, you know, unheard of. And you're the, one of the last chapters in the book, you, you talk about going to Coachella with, uh, 
where, where one of the companies in which you're invested is is throwing a party and you're you're there with with influencers and there's a there Justin Bieber's at the party there's a, a professional Bieber lookalike there are many of them but yes there are multiple people who look like Justin Bieber and so so what what is the experience of 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 working in tech when when you're not of that generation like and and do you look at some of an entity like that and you know wonder to your earlier point you know about what kind of social good this is generating yeah, you know, you, you don't want to be the old guy, you know, questioning the new generation. Like, you never want to be that person. And I've noticed in some investments we've done that, you know, for example, uh, GoPro, which was a success. Right. You know, if you'd ask me, oh, this is product where you videotape yourself and send it to friends, I'm like, that's just not something I'm ever going to do, right? But clearly to the young generation that it was all about, I remember seeing a presentation at CAA and they were, you know, marketing to millennials and I light bulb went off. It's like, you know, I want to be different with everyone else. Right. I am what I share. Right. That's not me. Right. But that's, that's a GoPro product. And then, then it's only the natural step to get to influencers, which is, you know, tell me, you know, tell me what I should do and what's cool in a world where, the traditional metrics don't apply. And so that combined with modern technology of media opened the door for these people to say, I'm gonna step into that role and I'm going to be your guide through this modern social uh, you know, existence. Because I remember meeting these influencers and they're charismatic and there's reasons that, but I'd say like, you know, they'd have, they'd have, I have 17 million followers and, I'd say, well, how'd you get 17 million followers? And they look at me like, what do you mean, how'd I get seven? Like, like what did you do to get 17 million <laughs> followers? Like, 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 were you like, if you were a celebrity, like a musician with some talent, and they actually do have a talent, it just turns out that their talent is getting people to follow them, right? It, 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 you know, I'm like, how did you get these 17 million followers? And, and, you know, so to me, it was a, a fascinating world. And I love being thrown, as you can probably tell from, some stories. I like being thrown into worlds I know nothing about. And so, um, you know, I was more than happy to go to the Tin House, the influential network house, which was basically, it's a, it's a marketing genius. It was like every room was pitching a product, right? Or a movie or a TV show. And then influencers would come back, come through and they'd be paid to basically go out to their following and say, you should, you know, drink this or watch this or whatever. You know, that's, I realized like this is, this is how the world now operates from uh, connecting the consumer to the product. And so to, to conclude it, it, it sounds like, you know, listening to you describe that experience, it, in a sense, you're, you're almost your hobby is putting yourself in situations that are unfamiliar or that are going to make you a little uncomfortable. Would you agree with that or has that always has that been a conscious strategy for you as long as you can remember well i guess a bit of background which i think describes it as my parents are greek immigrants from sparta greece so i was raised a spartan which means 
you can never be weak. You can never be put yourself in a comfortable situation because that will make you weak. So therefore, you must go to places which constantly make you uncomfortable. That's where you learn. That's where the life experience happens. And don't worry about failure. Like, the, like you didn't think about failure. You just thought, like, that wasn't part of the equation. And what worries me, having children now myself, it's like I, I find that, that there's too much focus on how this will end in terms of my risk tolerance. And so I don't, yeah, I, I, I worry too much that the risk drives. And I think about that now. I think about my greatest achievements to the extent that I had some. I, I, they almost had a naive idealism in there. Like I didn't look at the outcome. Now I think if you put me with my experience back into the Orange County bankruptcy, for example, I probably wouldn't have tried the solution that ended up working because I said, oh, that has low probability of success. I even asked myself now, what am I not doing that I should be taking on that will, that will yield you know, a great outcome? One of the reasons I did this book, I mean, there's times when you're writing a book, as you know, where you're like, why am I doing this? Like, creates exposure, it creates all kinds of things. And for what, you know, what purpose? But I said, you know what, the fact that it's making me uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing. And then look, I think all our lives would be more enriched if we did that more and more. And, and you look at the world where it's going now, we're all retreating into these bubbles and these similar, I want to be with people and we can create it now virtually. Right. We don't have to worry about our neighbors anymore. It's like, okay, I want to be in a community of people like this. You can go create that now. And so I think the whole world is moving in that, in another direction. It's like, I don't want, don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be with people that make me uncomfortable or situations that make me uncomfortable. Awesome. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm David Marcus with Drinks with a Deal. <laughs>